from the Alaska Airline Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make a lot good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. We got this is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Tuesday, May 12th. Thanks for hanging out this morning. Always love waking up, spending time with you ahead in this hour. Major League Baseball, at least the owners, approved a return to play proposal that could have baseball back by early July. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred planning to present that to players Tuesday, but it's likely just the very beginning of a contentious bargaining between these two parties, between uh, MLB and the Players Association. And sadly, a big sticking point it might be the financial side, might be the money, not so much the health and safety and well-being and how things logistically are going to play out, which is still a huge part of the question, considering July is not that far off. So we'll hear from Jeff Passan, Buster Only, on what exactly this proposal entails and how this could go down between Tony Clark and the Players Association and the owners. If revenue sharing could become uh, a part of MLB's future, they are, remember, the only uh, major league in the U.S. that does not include revenue sharing, but we'll discuss the details of that right now. Let's get to your headlines. Well, MLB, the owners, were in a conference call on Monday and agreed to a return-to-play proposal that would have baseball back by early July and teams playing in their home stadiums. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred is going to present that to players today. The meeting between MLB and the MLB Players Association also happening today. However, it's likely just the beginning of a long bargaining road between these two parties. And as I mentioned, the main focus is likely going to be about money and sadly not as huge a sticking point the health and safety side of it. If approved, MLB could be the first major American team sport to return amid COVID-19 and the concerns surrounding the coronavirus pandemic, but that is a huge if. The logistics of starting the season also still pretty convoluted and in some cases obscure, and the MLB is still tasked with getting players in the union on board for this. Money at the heart of the return of this, according to numerous articles out there, including Jeff Passan's latest for ESPN. He spoke yesterday on SportsCenter about the conference call that happened and the owners discussing plans uh, to return. It is going to be the plan, or at least the framework of a plan, for baseball to come back. Now, there are all kinds of different elements to this, but the most important one is going to be about the money. Major League Baseball is ready at this point to go to players and say, we will give you a share of the money that is coming into the league this year, which is typical in the NFL and the NBA and the NHL in capped sports. Major League Baseball, as an uncapped sport, has never had a revenue split. And it's why starting off the conversation and negotiation like this is an interesting tack by Major League Baseball, because it could put the Players Association on the defensive, saying, wait, 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 this is not how our financial system operates. Owners are staring down the reality of deep financial losses, uh, lost revenue if 
games come back and there aren't fans in the stands, so fan-free stadiums, which is a huge portion of their revenue. So agreeing to that plan yesterday, that includes a 50-50 revenue split with the players. MLB is still the lone uncapped team sport in the U.S. and never has a straight revenue split been part of the game's finances. So the MLBPA almost certainly will reject that part of the proposal and counter that the agreement that both parties had back in March that guaranteed players would uh, receive a prorated portion of their salaries depending on the number of games played is already a financial cut for them. The ability to strike a financial deal would could mean the difference between having a baseball season and having one that's canceled. Uh, Tony Clark has been pretty vocal about this, though. MLBPA executive director, he told The Athletic recently that, quote, a system that restricts player pay based on revenues is a salary cap, period. This is not the first salary cap proposal our union has received. It probably won't be the last. That the league is trying to take advantage of a global health crisis to get what they've failed to achieve in the past and to anonymously negotiate through the media for the last several days suggests they know exactly how this will be received. Jeff Passan on the Players Association not wanting to split revenue. It's going to say that we want to split revenues 50-50 down the middle. And while that may sound like a good deal, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing we see in the NFL and the NBA and the NHL. Uh, the MLBPA sees it as a pathway to a capped system. And Major League Baseball has been uncapped uh, for as long as it's been around. And the Players Association has zero intentions of allowing anything that resembles a capped system to be in place. So from the jump, we're dealing with a contentious situation financially. Then you compound it with the health aspects and trying to keep players healthy, trying to keep uh, coaches and managers and trainers and all the people who have to be around on a daily basis. Uh, This is a really difficult needle to thread. And and it's something that's going to take, I think, a couple of weeks to, to try and figure out if there's a deal to be made. Of course, there's also still plenty of concerns about how the league will ensure a safe work environment, uh, health and safety protocols. How available will testing be? How will it be carried out? Buster Olney also yesterday on concerns with MLB's plans to return uh, also spoke about the challenges that players will face in said return. Between, uh, I think, uh, three to four weeks. Look, when it first got shut down, what I was hearing from from teams, from uh, pitching coaches was that they would need three weeks. And now... They're going to need closer to to what's going to be a, a full spring training, and even then, I think if in fact they had four weeks and pitchers were able to build up a little bit, you're going to see expansions of staffs. I think you're going to have more relief pitchers available because they're going to want to protect these guys after this very strange set, uh, strange set of circumstances. Now they've ramped up. Uh, other parts of the proposal include an expansion of playoff teams from ten to fourteen. Also, I just deleted my sheet, but we're going to pull this back up again. Um, Also, where is it, Lydia? Okay, so other things in the proposal include uh, an expansion of playoff teams from 10-14 and 82-game season, the use of home stadiums in areas that have local and state government approval, and then spring training 2.0. It would begin in June with a season set for early July no games within that, just uh, ramping things back up, making sure that players are ready, at least as much as they can be. Also, a universal designated hitter. 
geographical schedules in which teams play only in-division opponents and interleague opponents in a similar area. A 30-man roster with uh, a taxi squad that would have upward of 50 players available. And the 50 players available would be a mixture of major leaguers and top minor leaguers with the minor league season in jeopardy as well. Uh, The playoff expansion, which has been floated before even the coronavirus pandemic, uh, would increase revenue, which is a huge concern right now, obviously, for teams estimating that upward of 40 percent of revenue comes from ticket sales and other gate related income. Jeff Passan on the money side of it, unfortunately, though, being a huge sticking point in this discussion. I would love to say that health and safety is the number one priority, but. I think that we all know better. It comes down to money. It always comes down to money. And and this is not to sit there and judge the, the players or, or the owners or anybody. I think in a lot of uh, different industries that, that, frankly, is the same case. But it's important to recognize, too, that I think the reason that health and safety are not up and on that same level as money is because of the recognition that health and safety in America right now uh, are very difficult to come by. Jeff Passan also on what the implications are for this long term, not just from an optics standpoint, but for the viability of baseball down the road. And he said not getting a deal done would be awful for both players and owners. What happens for the players and what happens for the owners, are both really freaking bad. I mean, really, really bad. In in a number of ways, it's bad financially, it's bad optically, it's bad for the stability of the the, the future of the sport itself. It's just so bad if there's not a deal, which is why I think there's going to be a deal. I, I think that we are in a particularly ugly week right now, and that if you follow baseball news this week, you think that baseball is not going to happen this year. But uh, I think they're they're getting their, you know, they're throwing haymakers in the first round. It's what you do early in a negotiation because you want to see just how strong somebody else's position is. And uh, I don't think either side's going to buckle. I think there's going to be contention, posturing, uh, words, uh, disappointment, anger, all of the things that typically come uh, in a negotiation that has a finite timetable. If it was uh, able to pass both sides uh, through on this negotiation process and be approved, the season could start Fourth of July weekend. Always been a huge weekend uh, in baseball, but uh, but that is a big if as as this begins a long and possibly contentious battle between those two sides. Coming up on the Blitz, did watching this latest uh, series of episodes of The Last Dance make you nostalgic for the Sonics? Hey, I feel nostalgic for the Sonics just about every single day, but seeing that little clip of the 96 finals and uh, hearing Michael Jordan's response to Gary Payton, his perceived slub of sub of George Carl, uh, it brought things back for me. So speaking of nostalgia, we get to hear from Kevin Calabro, the one, the only on those 96 finals. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. 
Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Tuesday, May 12th. Loving the last dance, as many of us are. And a little bit of nostalgia, especially hitting close to home. It's been fun to watch little pieces of the Sonics in some of these episodes so far. Gary Payton commenting on uh, during the Dennis Rodman episode a few weeks back about what kind of player he was or seeing some of the Sonics at the 1998 All-Star Game. But then we got the actual 96 series featured. Now I say featured is kind of a generous word because it was all too short, in my opinion, just the very end of episode eight on Sunday. Uh, Bob Costas at one point calling it the most mismatch finals in the history of the NBA. I think that was his quote. But some people taking a little bit of issue with that, including the one, the only Kevin Calabro, who joined 710 yesterday. You know, I heard that last night, too, and it really stood out. And I would disagree with Bob on that. I think he may have been referring to the fact that Michael Jordan was just he was a gathering storm. He was a tsunami ready to ready to break. That's what the Sonics were up against. And I think that's what Bob Costas was referring to. And, and of course, all that pent-up uh, anger. Uh, he, his father has been brutally murdered. Uh, the allegations that somehow it's tied to his gambling. And so that's what the Sonics were up against. So Costas, as usual, has some of that insight that I, that I don't have. But at the time, it did occur to me that, well, I didn't think it was such a matchup. I mean, the Sonics won 64, and they beat the Bulls one out of two in the regular season. Also, when it comes to the defensive matchup between Gary Payton and Michael Jordan, Kevin Calabro with some thoughts on that as well. Gary Payton was the defensive player of the year in the National Basketball Association, the most elite basketball association on the globe as a point guard. (laughs) Think about that. Think about that. It's for him to laugh off Gary Payton's presence. And George admitted it afterwards that maybe he should have started Gary on Jordan. But George just kind of offhandedly mentioned the calf. The calf did bother Gary. They had a they had a, a, a spandex. I call it a glove because he is the glove. But they had a, sort of that spandex tube on his calf to protect him. And we had a great coaching staff, Frank Furtado, or, or training staff. Frank Furtado was was remarkable. And George remarked last night that what he wanted to do was save Gary for the offensive end of the floor because don't forget Chicago got there by defending as well. Also, Sonic's missing Nate McMillan. It was pretty banged up. I would make one other point. Nate McMillan was banged up. His knees and back were bothering him big time. Uh, he was, uh, he was, I, I don't know what percent it put on him, but barely over 50%. And you're talking about a 6'5 defender that, that Magic Johnson said was the toughest cover he had in his career. And so if you've got a, a healthy Nate McMillan out there uh, that you can – uh, get a few minutes on Michael Jordan because you're, you're not going to guard him with one guy yet. You had to mix it up. Sonic attempted to do that. Also featured in the documentary was Michael Jordan saying George Carl not speaking to him at dinner uh, the night before. And in his mind, snubbing him was motivation that he used to beat the Sonics. But as we know, Jordan, a master at storytelling and using instances, whether real or even sometimes imaginary of perceived disrespect to create these motivation situations. George Carl explaining the MJ restaurant snub. And I said, hey, it's about competing at the highest level on the biggest stage in basketball. We don't need any fraternizing. We don't need any socializing. We do not need any, you know, niceness. I mean, it's going to be a physical series. It's going to be an aggressive series. And we just got to be the best competitor, best SOB we can be. And, uh, you know, I, I, can't, I had like a five-minute speech 
on don't let Michael Jordan, don't let Dennis Rodman, don't let their their, their championship pedigree get in your head. Do your job. And so when I saw Michael in the restaurant, I was kind of in a hard, you know, I was in a tough place. If I go say hello to him, I'm breaking the code that I just gave my team. <laughs> and if I don't go to him, I might motivate him. But, you know, I've never been a big believer that on the biggest stage that if you can't get motivated to play in the NBA Finals against the championship team and against Michael Jordan, well, you're going to lose anyways. Right. You know, you, you have no chance. Kevin Calabro uh, also saying yesterday, telling 710, that uh, he actually loved that George Carl didn't speak to Michael Jordan. When I heard the story last night, I was reminded of that episode. And I'm even more in George's corner now. Uh, I absolutely love it. No, we don't fraternize with the opponents in an upcoming series for a world <laughs> championship. I don't care if it's your brother. Sorry. It's after the finals are over. Then we'll go play golf. We'll go play pool, ping pong, whatever. But as we get ready for a game, as we get ready for a championship game, there's, there's not going to be any fraternization or glad-handing. I'm out to beat you. I'm out to beat you in any way I can. Bob Kondota of the Seattle Times also joining uh, the station yesterday to talk about this series and also another perceived slight that uh, Jordan may have against Carl. At some point in there, they had gone to a North Carolina game to honor Dean Smith and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so they so they knew each other, but, you know, a lot better than, than your normal uh, opposing coach, opposing player might. Um, and so after that game, people were like, what did George say? And, you know, it turned out that it was basically what I think George felt was just like an observation, basically, that, that Jordan is sort of a Lying on his jump shot more these days, which I think was uh, uh, um, entirely true. I think he was. You know, Jordan became a much better. Go back and look, and, and he became a much better three-point shooter as his career went on, and sort of as you know, like a lot of guys do, sort of comp- was compensating by becoming a better uh, three-point shooter and all that, and relying on that a little bit more. And that was basically all George said. But but you know, Jordan sort of took that as this big criticism that he can't drive into the lane anymore and use that to score 45 points in that game. That's all you need. And as we learned in the last two episodes, sometimes you don't even need a real statement. Sometimes it could be just uh, a made-up one for motivation. Michael Jordan, the master at using storytelling to find motivation to to beat teams, to beat individual players. Up next on The Blitz, Dave Wyman has been profiling some of the Seahawks' latest draft picks. And we'll dig into another one, a potential weapon for Russell Wilson, next on The Blitz, right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Tuesday, May 12th. The draft now seems pretty far in the rear viewer, even though it's not many weeks off that we had the NFL draft brought some excitement into our lives. The virtual draft pretty pulled off pretty flawlessly, in my opinion. And with the 35th pick in the sixth round, the Seahawks selected wide receiver Freddie Swain out of Florida. Six feet, 197 pounds, ran a 4-4-6 40-yard dash at the NFL Combine. And at the time, John Schneider, GM for the Seahawks, saying he's going to be fun to watch. First and foremost, he's a really, really tough-minded individual, tons of grit, uh, very instinctive, has played outside, played inside. He's a very, he's a very good punt returner. I would say, you know, from a special team standpoint, he's going to be a guy that's going to be uh, – 
He's going to be in the mix right away. He's just got a great attitude about him. Aaron Heinlein and, uh, you know, Alonzo Highsmith, you know, Matt Berry, the guys that went into the school really liked the person when they left, you know, when they left the school, they were extremely fired up about him. He's got, he's got some swag about him. He's a smart football player. He's a competitor. He just, he's going to be a fun guy to watch. We're very, we're very excited. He's one of those guys that studies his tail off. And so, you know, as I told you before, or as we talked about last night, it's been important for us to try to acquire players that seem to be, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve from a uh, learning standpoint in this current environment that we're in. All of Rookie Camp virtual uh, is conducted virtually, and who knows what the fate of further OTAs, minicamp, preseason uh, will look like, training camp will look like down the road as the NFL still working through their plan for COVID-19. But our own Dave Wyman, someone who knows this team very well, you can hear him on the broadcast along with Steve Rabel, but profiling Freddie Swain, breaking it down on Bob David Moore. So I went through, and first of all, I just looked at it. You look at his college stats. He played 37 games at Florida. And, and I always like to see the numbers, you know, from freshman to sophomore to junior to senior go up. And so he played six games his freshman year, eight his sophomore year, 11 his junior year, and 12 his senior year. So good resume, right? Played in 37 games. And then pretty much the same with the receptions. He had eight, eight, 14, and 38 his senior year. You know, he had 38 catches for 517 yards last year, and he had seven touchdowns. So the, the other thing about him, he's a really good punt returner as well. So um, he had an 85-yard uh, punt return. I think it was, it was either Colorado or Colorado State. 85 yards. It was the second largest in Florida history. So this guy can make the team, and, and that was kind of the ranking, is we'll make the team because of special teams. He's a good punt returner. So, you know, and he had 39 uh, returns for 308 yards and a touchdown. So, uh, combine ran a 446, 16 reps on 225, which is pretty good. 36 and a half inch vertical, which this guy can easily, you know, dunk a basketball. When you look at him out on the field, he kind of has that skip stutter step that uh, that Doug Baldwin has, you know. And oh, one other thing I want to say before I get into some of the film and stuff I looked at. Um, he played through a torn labrum in his shoulder one season. He got it fixed. I don't know if it was his freshman year or sophomore year, but he played He played hurt. That's part of it. That's part of being an NFL player. I mean, you know, when you have – we used to call the, the guys that are like, yeah, I'm, I'm not good to go. I'm, I'm 90% or I'm 85%. Call them track guys. That's a track guy. You know, a bit, you're not a football player. If you can't play with an injury, and you're going to have to play with an injury. So I thought that was a, that was a good sign. So – um, some of his catches, that when you look at like his highlight film, the touchdown catches, there's twice or three times where he's wide open, where there's like a scheme breakdown, and and I, I feel like you know he didn't really make his way a lot as far as getting open, uh, so much as it was you know a, a scheme bust, you know where they overload a side, you know there was one time where they threw like that fake screen, so that you got three guys over you know it's three by one three wide receivers and one guy steps back and another guy takes off and goes straight down the field like he's going to block and then gets free and he had a touchdown that way you know where it was just he was just wide open um some of the some of the criticisms i saw was that he's not a sharp route runner which is not uncommon for i mean you would have said that about dk metcalf coming out of college because you run a route that's good enough to get you open in college 
And so it's just harder in the NFL. You have to be more precise. The other thing with him was that he's a little bit of a body catcher. So he lets the ball get into his pads and into his body. Not a lot of high point catches, but but a lot of catches. And, and here's uh, I'll leave it with the, the, the last thing. Well, here's actually another. I saw he, he had a one-handed tip catch. Now, this is always really impressive to me because, you know, when you can, they do those drills where the receivers will all line up like like it's a tunnel, and somebody is on the other end throwing the ball to a receiver on, on the other end, and everybody waves their arms. You're not hitting the ball, but you're just putting your arms up there and trying to distract him, and that's that's really difficult. It's a, it's a great drill, and I know almost every receiver group does that. He had one like that, a catch in a, in the field. There was a. It wasn't thrown to him. It was thrown to a different receiver. He was running a crossing route, and a DB tipped it, and then he reached out with one hand, and it all happened pretty quickly, and he reached out with one hand and grabbed it. So some pretty impressive things. The, the, the best thing about this guy, though, the best thing is he has a really good sense for following his blockers, and and that's why I think he'll be a, a good punt returner. He can he can probably go out there and and compete, but um, there were so many times where I watched him. He has like an uncanny knack of following and knowing which way because there's a lot of times where I'm like, no, don't 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 do, do that. Why are you going that way? And then he made the right decision and he got free. That was our own Dave Wyman. Listen to him every afternoon on Bob Dave and More from 3 to 7 p.m. We also got to hear from Freddie himself on where he sees himself fitting in in this wide receiver group. Says he sees himself as more of a slot guy, but he'll fit in anywhere. He can. He just wants to earn a job. I'm more of a slot guy. I like to work. I'm not opposed to working outside. I bring a lot of energy. Uh, I play with passion, and I just love to uh, compete. And I think when Coach, me and Coach Carroll talked on the phone, he made a big emphasis on, on just competing in, when I get in Seattle. So um, I think I should fit in well with the guys. They got a bunch of guys that love to compete, and um, I think I should fit in well. Said so it's motivating to be part of such a talented wide receiver team here in Seattle. Oh, it's motivating. Uh, for somebody like me, I, I, I like challenges. Um, I like being an underdog, so anytime I can com- compete with with a great group of guys, I just I, I feel like we're fitting well, and it just bring the, the the intensity in the room up. You heard Schneider mention that something to look for this year is NFL readiness, the quick learners, the guys that they think can adapt quickly and don't need a lot of time because of the limitations of COVID nineteen, and also just taking less risk in that department. Freddie's saying he's ready to learn an NFL offense. Just come in and grow, you know, just pick the speed of the game up and and whether that be taking it from a, a vet that's been there or taking it from DK that's been there for, for a year. You know, we got a, a great quarterback. He, he, he loves to spread the ball around. So just to, just to grow from them and, and see how the, the transition is going to be is, is probably the best thing, just the speed of the game. Well, we do know special teams will be a big part of his NFL career. Uh, we heard that from John Schneider, and uh, Freddie thinks so as well. I think it'll be a, uh, I'll have a big impact on, on me in the next level. Um, you got, just got to come in and compete. And, you know, just uh, special teams to kind of uh, get me a, a step further on the field uh, besides offense. So, you know, just come in and catch the ball and don't put the ball on the ground and, and get it back for the offense. So. We like to hear that. Coming up next on The Blitz, still more on The Last Dance. We got to hear from Kevin Calabro earlier in this hour, but we'll hear from the director of The Last Dance on some of the emotional moments up in episodes seven and eight and getting Jordan to open up 
uh, in rare moments, human moments that we don't often see from him. Also, his baseball manager, Terry Francona, Tito, on believing MJ would have made the majors if given enough at-bats and a very memorable phone call that he got from Jordan. It's next in the hall list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! It's been pretty cool to watch these last dance episodes for a number of different reasons, but also because you get to, you often associate some of your favorite athletes or the biggest athletes with being superhuman. The things they do physically are superhuman, and thus you expect them to be superhuman in all aspects of their life, emotionally, mentally. And I definitely say Michael Jordan is superhuman mentally in a lot of ways, overcoming a lot of things in his life. But We saw the human side of Jordan this past week, especially some of these episodes digging into hard times in Jordan's life, whether it's dealing with the aftermath and wake of uh, his relationship with the media. But this past week, the death of his father, the murder of his father, and uh, also just how he is perceived as the coming at the his success coming at the expense of being perceived as a nice guy. And you saw that hit home with Jordan. When at the end of episode seven, he just had to say break and uh, tears were uh, welling up in his eyes that at the end of the day, I think everybody still wants to be liked and accepted for exactly who they are. And and you saw Jordan kind of get emotional about that. Jason Hare, who is director of these episodes, he spoke with, I believe this was on Jalen and Jacoby about that emotional end to episode seven and how he also had to to step away and uh, hang out in the bathroom for a couple of minutes after that scene was filmed, but was asked, do you ever spare someone's feelings in these moments when you're trying to get and elicit these emotional responses? Never. Because at the very least, my outlook on this thing from the beginning was let's go as hard as we can in these rough cuts and then I'll fight the battles. And there's some hills I'll die on and sometimes I'll dig my heels in and kick and stomp and have a, a knockdown drag out brawl of which we had plenty in the last two years with all of the partners. So I was not always right with these things, but I will say there's nothing that we ever did not put in that we wanted to put in. And we said, well, that that's too hard. That's not going to go over too well. There never once was. And I know this is, listen, my voice is, is too hoarse from all of the talking and arguing that we've done in the last two years <laughs> to sit there and let someone say it's not a real story and real journalism and it's a puff piece and that it's promotional. Listen, just because the guy is the hero in a lot of the stories that we're telling doesn't mean that it's false. Also, Jason Hare on the on depicting the relationship between Jordan and his father. Michael's relationship with his dad was extraordinary. Whether he was a celebrity or if he wasn't a celebrity, his dad was, was more than his dad. He was one of his best friends, if not his best friend. And given that we showed earlier in the series, you saw in episode two, how difficult it was to get his dad's attention, to get that affection that he wanted from his dad, to get the approval he wanted from his dad, and how that drove his competitive spirit. 
So we tried to just kind of plant seeds throughout the series, showing that his dad was always there. He was right next to him when he won the title in 91. He was right there for him when he decided to do the media blackout. And he spoke for him in 93. And then I really wanted people to understand why it was so significant. It, it was the thing that pushed Michael over the edge and actually made him leave the game of basketball. So this was not just the death of a father. It's the horrific death of a father. We thought it was imperative just to establish just how close they were as much as we could early in the episode. Still one of the most amazing athletic feats to Jordan, 14 years removed, I believe, from playing baseball. Although that was his first passion and a huge thing that he shared with his dad, his dad getting him into baseball originally, uh, decided to take a break from basketball and uh, and try his hand at baseball and started in double A, basically because there wasn't adequate press facilities at any team, any minor league team below that and any of the uh, lower A facilities. But uh, pretty incredible. Went to double A, hit 202, drove in 50 runs. And his manager at the time, Terry Francona, the legendary Tito, he had some cool comments. Uh, he said in that documentary that he believes MJ would have made the majors and doubled down on that yesterday as well. I don't think I would say might. I really believe, honestly, you give him 1,500 at-bats, which is three years. He had the tools and he certainly had the drive that he'd have found a way to get to the big leagues. I have no doubt about that. And the other thing is, I found out, is when you tell him no, he finds a way to make the answer be yes. Jordan's own father saying that at one point, the best thing that you can do is tell him he can't do something, and then he's going to do it. Tito, though, also talking about MJ just having respect for the people who played the game of baseball for the game itself. Well, frenzy's a good word. You know, it had a, it had all the makings of maybe being able to go off the rails for a number of reasons, and it never did. And it actually never came close to going off the rails. I give Michael so much credit for that. He he respected the game of baseball so much, and he respected the people in the game so much that it actually made it really fun and really easy for me and the coaches. And, <laughs> and, and again, it's because of the respect factor. Terry Francona also remembering a memorable call that he got from MJ. You know, he told me, and this was one of the coolest things ever, when he went back to basketball, he called me on a Sunday morning, he was on his way to a game, and he goes, you know, he goes, you guys love doing what you do so much. He goes, I enjoy basketball more now. And that hit home with me, and it made me feel so good. Just loving basketball, finding that joy for it, pretty cool. Well, last week, well, in a few minutes, we'll discuss the MLB proposal for return and the contentious debate that will probably carry on for a while between the Players Association and MLB, but every sports league in a different position right now on the possibility of return to play. The NBA held a Zoom conference call last Friday with Adam Silver, with uh, all of the players, as well as, I believe, some executives from the teams, but definitely with all the players, Adrian Wojnarowski describing what exactly was discussed on that player Zoom call. A few things. Number one, no decision needs to be made during the month of May, nor necessarily right away in June on returning this season. That uh, the hope of the league is, if they do return, that they would not shorten the playoff series, that they would do seven-game series in the playoffs. That's their hope. Um, a willingness to certainly start next season uh, late, this mid to late December. And, I, and, and something that I thought was very important was Silver saying on the call that he believed 
by the time the league would be ready to return this year, that there would be enough testing in the country for him uh, to, to that it would be okay for the NBA to play, that they wouldn't not play because they felt like they'd either be taking up testing meant for others or the per- or what it really is, is the perception that they're taking up testing. So a lot of things covered in this. And Adam Silver, though, spending a decent amount of that time talking about revenue for the league and how revenue share will work moving forward. He also brought up force majeure, which I don't know if this is the most times that I've heard uh, about force majeure in the past couple of months, just because of where we are at in this time globally. But it's a it's a term it's derived from Latin means essentially extraordinary occurrence beyond control and often a legal term in contracts that frees both parties from liability or obligation when something extraordinary, a quote, act of God takes place, whether that is a war strike riot crime or as we're currently in an epidemic. So force majeure being an important uh, watchword that Adam Silver brought up and Brian Windhorst, ESPN insider, explains why that is important. Once the NBA enforces the force majeure, uh, which would they would do when they, if they cancel a game, which I'm sure they're going to have to do probably at some point, they can void the CBA. They can take the CBA and, and just say, hey, this none of this matters. We got to start over. That's a that's a cent even within the contract. It's sort of a passing reference sentence, but it's a daunting reality. And um, I know that it's hard to talk about labor issues and your split and everything like that right now. But man, it's Adam bringing that out at this point in this call, I think, was a real wake up for it was for me when I heard about it. Meanwhile, Major League Baseball owners approving a return to play proposal yesterday that would or could have baseball back by early July. The Players Association and MLB going to meet today, and and the Commissioner Rob Manfred going to present that plan to players. However, this is likely just the beginning of a contentious bargaining road between these two parties. If approved, the MLB could be the first major American team sport to return amid the coronavirus pandemic. But again, a big if. The logistics of starting the season are still pretty convoluted, sometimes obscure. The MLB is also tasked with getting players and the union on board with this. The main contention between the two sides, sadly, according to Passon and many others, will likely be money, not health and safety. Owners are looking at a harsh reality uh, with deep financial losses, with the lost revenue of fan-free stadiums. So even if they do return uh, the loss of those ticket sales and concessions, everything that goes along with it, Uh, will create financial hardship, especially for teams in those small market cities that do not have big TV contracts. So owners agreed in a conference call Monday afternoon to a plan that includes a 50-50 revenue split with the players. Why is this significant? Well, because MLB is still the lone uncapped team sport in the United States. They have never had a straight revenue split between uh, being a part of the game's finances. So the MLBPA, almost certain that they will reject this. We've heard Tony Clark, their director, be very vocal about it and said, quote, a system that restricts player pay based on revenues is a salary cap period. This is not the first salary cap proposal our union has received. It probably won't be the last, but said that uh, he accused, quote, the league is trying to take advantage of a global health crisis to get what they've failed to achieve in the past. 
Jeff Passan explaining why the MLBPA won't want to split revenue. It's going to say that we want to split revenues 50-50 down the middle. And while that may sound like a good deal, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing we see in the NFL and the NBA and the NHL. Uh, the MLBPA sees it as a pathway to a cap system. And Major League Baseball has been uncapped uh, for as long as it's been around. And the Players Association has zero intentions of allowing anything that resembles a cap system to be in place. So from the jump, we're dealing with a contentious situation financially. Then you compound it with the health aspects and trying to keep players healthy, trying to keep uh, coaches and managers and trainers and all the people who have to be around on a daily basis. Uh, this is a really difficult needle to thread. And, and it's something that's going to take, I think, a couple of weeks to, to try and figure out if there's a deal to be made. Other points included in the proposal include an expansion of playoff teams from 10 to 14, an 82-game season, the use of home stadiums in areas that have local and state government approval, and then the spring training 2.0 would uh, begin in June, but likely could have no games there, just a way for players to ramp up with the season set for early July. Could be July 4th weekend. Also, a universal designated hitter and a 30-man roster with a taxi squad that would have upward of 50 players available uh, top minor league prospects as well as major league players. But that huge contention point uh, being money and not health and safety could be a bad optics, a bad look for the league for time to come. And Jeff Passan explaining why not getting a deal done would be awful for both sides. What happens for the players and what happens for the owners are both really freaking bad. I mean, really, really bad. In a number of ways, it's bad financially, it's bad optically, it's bad for the stability of the, the, the future of the sport itself. It's just so bad if there's not a deal. That's a wrap for the Hot List and the entire Blitz at Six Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.